The book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. That's the very word. The word Genesis means origin, the foundation, the beginning. And the book of Genesis, as we come back to studying it again, is no different. It's a book that tells the beginnings. It tells the origin of the world, the, the narrative, the story by which the world came into being and the one who created it. It's the story that tells the origin of, well, the world as we know it now. Not just the world that God created, but the world under slavery to sin. It explains the origin of people as we know them. Selfish, greedy, idolatrous. It explains the origin of God's redemption, the salvation that God brought into this world that was in slavery. The book of Genesis gives us beginnings to all sorts of things that are going to be unpacked throughout the scriptures. It's also the book where we see the origins of a lot of the theology that we understand. Now, as soon as I say the word theology, you might be tempted to decide to switch off and get a little bit scared. Please don't. Theology is good. You need to learn to love the word. I mean, after all, theology just means words about God. Theology means learning about God. It's, it's very hard to relate to someone you don't know. We need theology. And in Genesis, so much of the theology, so much of the knowledge of God and his ways that we have, has its origins. It has its beginnings in these chapters. How would we know God made the world if it wasn't for Genesis 1? How would we know about sin and the consequences of rebelling against God if it wasn't for Genesis 3? How would we know that God has intention to save a people for himself if it wasn't for Noah and then Abraham and the promises and so much of the theology that we need to know, so much of what we need to know about God begins in Genesis. We need to learn to read it and to read it closely. Now, in today's chapters, in Genesis 25, really through to the start of chapter 28, we're going to see the origins, the beginnings of one of the most important theological points there are, one of the most important doctrines. Now, it's important and it's also one of the most controversial, I think. Not controversial because the Bible is unclear, but controversial because often people don't like it. We need to learn to listen to the Scriptures and let them teach us what God is like and what he does in the world. Now, I'm not going to read all of chapters 25 through to 27, and I hope that if you're unfamiliar with the story of Jacob and Esau, you did take a moment to pause earlier and read through it. Uh, but look, we're going we're to dive straight in. We're going to get to this theology very quickly, and then I'm going to draw some, some teachings out from the story as we go along. Uh, it went last week, if you remember where Joe left off for us, Isaac had married Rebecca. He loved her and he was comforted after his mother's death. Now, as we hit chapter 25, Abraham marries again, has other kids and dies and is buried in that same cave, that same one little bit of land that they owned in the promised land for now. We hear how Ishmael, who was Abraham's first son through Hagar, the servant woman, how he prospers in accordance with what God had promised to Abraham. And then we come to Isaac. And so chapter five, uh, sorry, chapter 25 and verse 19, these are the family records of Isaac, son of Abraham. Now, when you see that line, these are the family records of, or these are the generations of, as some of the other translations had it, you've got to pay attention. That, that's like the little heading. If that marked the chapters for us, 
This is chapter 7 or 8, depending on whether you count Ishmael. This begins a new account. This begins a new act in Genesis. We're going to meet some new characters and learn some new things. And what is it that happened? Well, it's kind of strange, actually. These are the family records of Isaac, but really it's not about Isaac, but about Isaac's children. Isaac as a character, we don't meet very much at all. Through chapter 26, there's a series of events that are basically identical to what happened to Abraham. Exactly the same thing happens. There's famine, right? He's got to move to a place. He pretends his wife is his sister. He gets into trouble for it. God looks after them. The point, God continues to bless Isaac. But then Isaac has two children. And that's what brings us really to the theology of these chapters, to the point I want to make in this sermon, and to the point I take it of the next 11 chapters, this act as we hear about the sons of Isaac. Verse 20, Isaac was 40 years old when he took his, as his wife Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Paddan Aram and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord was receptive to his prayer and his wife Rebekah conceived. But the children inside of her struggled with each other and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. It's a little bit of a twist of the story, isn't it? Twins! So unexpected. Uh, in this case, they are diochorionic, uh, duoamniotic twins. I've had to learn all sorts of words. We're, we're expecting twins. Ours are monochorionic, duoamniotic twins. So in this case, they were non-identical, as we will hear soon enough when they meet. But they're fighting, they're struggling, even within the womb. They didn't have ultrasounds back then, so I don't know if Rebecca just thought she had one particularly active child or if she was able to see the, the, the four little feet or whatever it is pummeling from the inside. Uh, but there they are, these twins having it at each other already. And she does the right thing. She goes to inquire of the Lord. And here it is in verse 23. This word from God is the, is the grid. This is the thing that we use to interpret the next 11 chapters. As we learn this lesson about God, verse 23 is the key. As God speaks and he says this, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. There is the word from God that teaches us what we need to understand about how God works in the world and how to understand the struggle that continues over the next 11 chapters. Now, here's the point of the sermon. Right? Here's the piece of theology that I want to teach you. Here is the doctrine we need to learn. The story of Jacob and Esau, almost more than any other story in the Bible, teaches us how God accomplishes his redemptive purposes through sovereign election. Let me say that again. God accomplishes his redemptive purposes. God saves his people through sovereign election, through his own will, through his own act, through his choice. If you want me to summarize it for you, it's very simple. God chooses, God plans, God 
is in control. And we see it here more than anywhere else. I mean, here are two babies in the womb before either of them had any opportunity to influence God for, for right or for wrong, for good or for evil, before either of them had a chance to please or to offend God, before either of them could choose God, God had already determined, Esau I hated, Jacob I loved. Now, it's strange, isn't it? Because Jacob goes on to have 12 sons and all 12 of them are included in the promise. God could have included Esau. He chose not to. That is really the lesson for the next 11 chapters. In fact, it's the lesson that runs through Genesis. It's the lesson that runs through the rest of the Bible. This isn't a a one-off, a little quirky piece of theology that's obscure and buried in a chapter here. All through the rest of the Bible, this is true. God is sovereign. He is the one who acts according to his own will, according to his choice. That is how he brings about redemption. We saw it in Romans chapter 9, as that was read for us. I don't know if you heard. It refers back to this story of Jacob and Esau. And it says that God's purposes in being sovereign might stand. He chose Jacob. But it's not just there, is it? Jesus, if you want to go by Jesus' teaching, he said similar things. In John chapter 15, he said to his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. In John chapter 6, no one can come to me unless the Father brings him. Paul teaches it. I mean, we saw Romans 9 or Ephesians chapter 1. You can go and read that. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Peter teaches it. 1 Peter chapter 1, as he writes to those who are the elect exiles, chosen exiles. God is sovereign over all including who he saves. It's a bit of an unsettling idea for for our, our modern Western individualism that someone else might be in charge of our lives, that someone else might be powerful over us. We, we tend to assume, I think, that the default state of humanity is freedom, that you and I are free. I can do whatever I want. I mean, we teach that to our kids in schools, right? You can be whatever you want to be. But perhaps I wonder if it isn't part of our culture's, at least part of it, uh, kind of hesitation about vaccines, right? I, I am sovereign over myself. I am free individual to choose what I want. And nobody, no other individual, no doctor, no church, no government, nobody can tell me what to do. No God, even. Friends, this is why Genesis matters so much. This is why we have to learn the lesson. See, I think our culture has forgotten the lesson from Act 1, from the very beginning of Genesis. Sovereign election doesn't make sense only if you don't understand sin and its consequences. If you don't understand what happened when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and what God did was to curse the world. We don't live in a neutral world. We don't live in a world that is free to do whatever it wants. The curse that is the judgment of God is the curse of slavery. It's the very opposite of freedom. 
enslaved by our sin. You see, what our culture has done is we've bought the third oldest lie in the book. Do you remember the third oldest lie? Well, I mean, if if we work our way through them, do you remember the first lie, the very first lie ever told, recorded for us in Genesis 3 as the serpent speaks to Eve and says, did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Did God really say? There's the first lie. The first lie is, I don't believe that God speaks. And I certainly don't believe that he speaks the truth. The second lie. Do you remember the second oldest lie? You will not die. There's the second lie. Our culture believes that one too. I don't believe in judgment. I don't believe in consequences. And then came that third lie, the third oldest lie in the book. Do you remember that one? that the fruit of rebellion will set you free. God knows the day you eat of it, you will become like him, knowing good and evil, determining your own course. (laughs) It's the promise of the enlightenment, isn't it? Freedom! We are free to be who we want to be, to do what we want to do, and no one can tell us otherwise, except that the word of God tells us otherwise. We are cursed because of our rebellion. God has determined you shall never be free. You are a slave. We're not really free, are we? We're not. I don't know by which measure of freedom we can convince ourselves that we are truly free. We're not socially free. You you can't meet whoever you want to meet. You try it. When this finishes, you go and meet Pick famous person of your choice, right? If you want a politician, I want to go and meet the new prime minister, right? If you're a sports person, I want to go and meet Lionel Messi. If you're a TikToker, I don't know, I want to go and meet my, the greatest influencer who's got the 50 million followers. You can't. You're not socially free. We're not relationally free. You can't marry whoever you want. Well, maybe they're already married. You, 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 we're not morally free. We can't do whatever we want. Most of the time, if you did the first thing that came to your brain, you'd end up in jail. We're not geographically free. We can't go wherever we want. I mean, you know, we're in COVID and the borders are closed. We can't do that anyway. But we can't go to the bottom of the ocean. We can't go up into space. We can't simply fly around. We're not geographically free. We are bound creatures. We're not temporally free. We can't live for as long as we want to. We are not economically free. You don't have everything you want. I don't know by which measure we're free. We're not. Which is why it's such good news that the way God has chosen to operate in this world that is his is to exert his sovereign power in election to redeem a people for himself. Because I tell you what, without that, without that mercy, choosing to save people to enjoy real freedom in him, Slavery would mean we would never be free. Now, there's the point. Okay, that, That's the piece of theology I want you to learn. That's what I want you to take away from today's sermon. I want you to see God as the God who brings about his redemptive purposes through his sovereign election. Now, I want to wind through the story a little bit more and point out three aspects of this sovereign election as we go through. 
Three aspects. Now, again, I'm not going to read the story in depth. I really hope you take a chance to read. There's so much in there, so many quirky little details and parallels and spend the rest of the week studying it. It'll be a blessing to you. But let me point out just three aspects. First is this. God will achieve his purpose of redemption through his sovereign election despite the rotten materials he's got to work with, despite the people that he has to use. Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Esau, they really are the family from hell. They are horrible. They really are. Right, verse 24, it happened when the time came to give birth, there were indeed twins in her womb. The first came out red, covered with hair like a fur coat. They named him Esau. He's a charming baby. Right, then his brother came out grasping Esau's heel with his hand. He was named Jacob, grasps or deceives. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born, 20 years after they got married. That's a long time to be without children. Verse 27, and, and in these just two verses, 27 and 28, I want to show you the picture of the family. When the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter and outdoorsman, but Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. I think those two verses just about summarize the family, all you need to know about it. It's a family that is dysfunctional, dishonest, disreputable, and rife with division. From day one, there's preferential treatment. As Isaac, the glutton, thinks only with his stomach, he loves Esau because Esau hunts food for him. We'll see it again in just a couple of chapters. In chapter 27, the thing that Esau can think of is, I want some more of that good food. When Rebecca thinks of how to trick her husband, she thinks, I'm going to cook him the right food. He'd fit right in today, wouldn't he? Absolute foodie. He knows where the best camel burgers are. I don't think Bean and Bite does them anymore, unfortunately. But anyway, there's Isaac, a weak man who is driven by his stomach and his preference for his older son is born out of that desire. There's Esau, a man who is hot-headed and irreverent. Red, he'll be named very soon because of that stew that he so wanted. And his whole life is like that. He doesn't think of the consequences. He doesn't think of the eternal consequences. He despises God's gift of the promises to the family. There's Rebecca. Man, I don't know how to read Rebecca. I mean, back in chapter 24, Isaac loved his wife. Right? So I, I don't know, was there a, a whirlwind romance? But Rebecca will get her way. She's absolutely prepared to deceive her husband to manipulate him, to do whatever it takes to get her outcome for her son, who is Jacob, the liar, the cheat, the deceiver. Pretty much every interaction we ever see of Jacob's, he's trying to deceive someone. And yet, despite that family, despite the rottenness of the raw materials, despite this wretched, messed up scum of a family, God graciously chooses to redeem them, to bring about his purposes through them, to make his promises and his covenant with them, to bring blessing to the whole world through them. Again, this isn't a one-off. This is a story that goes on and on through the Bible. God does this with prostitutes, with tax collectors, with murderers. God saves the worst of the worst 
It ought to give us a moment of pause, actually. If those are the sorts of people that God saves, what does it say about you and about me? I'll tell you what, at the very least, it ought to drive us to thankfulness, to praise, to deep, deep, heartfelt thankfulness to our God for his work at saving even the most wretched. God achieves his purposes of redemption through sovereign election despite rotten raw materials. Secondly, he does it through responsible human decisions. God works sovereignly, God chooses, God plans, God acts and he does it through responsible human decisions. Esau, let's talk about him for a moment, right? He's not a very pleasant character, but gee, he's hard done by, right? His his brother twice does him over, first for his birthright, second for the promises and the blessing from his father. I mean, Esau himself is not necessarily a particularly nice character. He consistently and repeatedly despises God, but how can you blame Esau? I mean, if God didn't choose him, then surely God is to blame. Well, again, here's the consistent teaching of the Bible, that the way God operates in the world, the way he exercises his sovereign choice is through responsible human decisions. Jacob and Esau, however much God had determined from beforehand who would be what and what they would do, Jacob and Esau exercised their human will. Esau walked in one day and said, I'm starving, give me some of that stew. And when Jacob said, well, promise me your birthright, Esau didn't say, no, that's the most valuable thing to me in the world. In fact, even if I should die, I will hold on to that birthright because it has eternal consequences. No, Esau said, okay, feed me, give me some of the red stuff. Jacob exercised his human will as he went about deceiving his father and seeking the promises. Esau, as he married the foreign women. And now in Esau's case, his will brought about foolish, tragic, eternal consequences. He traded in God's eternal blessing for some immediate gratification. Now, we need to learn the warning from Esau's story. We need to learn the very stark danger that awaits us. Don't be like Esau, who chose to exercise his will to trade in eternity for immediate gratification. The challenge from Esau is that we ought to respond with all of our human will to the call of the gospel. God being sovereign doesn't lead us to fatalism. Well, God will choose whatever, whatever. I'm just going to sit on the couch and, well, God's going to choose. It doesn't matter. No. We are told to exercise our responsible human will. It doesn't lead us into despair either. I don't know if God's chosen me. Oh, no. Again, God calls on us to respond to the gospel. You see, we ought to have courage out of this not fear. God chooses to show mercy to slaves. Jacob, honestly, is no better than Esau was. If anything, you could even say he's worse. God chose to have mercy. 
God will exercise his sovereign redemption despite, despite the rottenness of the raw materials, through responsible human decisions. And thirdly then, he will not be stopped. And I tell you, he's not going to be stopped by the weakness of his people. God's purposes aren't going to come undone because you and me can't do it. God's purposes will not be stopped by the ignorance or the malice or the bluffing of his opponents. Come over to chapter 27, just really briefly. Let's, let's touch on a couple of points in this part of the next, the next event in the lives of these brothers. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak he couldn't see, he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son. He answered, Here I am. He said, Look, I'm old and don't know the day of my death. So take your hunting gear, your quiver, your bow, go out into the field to hunt some game for me. Make me a delicious meal that I love. Bring it to me to eat so that I may bless you before I die. God had promised that the younger would be the one to rule. Now, I don't know if Isaac was just ignorant. Maybe Rebecca had never told him. She certainly seems to be a cunning enough, manipulative enough person to never have told that to Esau, possibly. Maybe Esau was just malicious. This is my favourite and I want him to rule. Jacob, well, forget about him. Or maybe he was just doddery and old and doesn't know what was going on anymore and he just wanted some yummy food, whatever it is. Here goes Isaac to change the course of God's plans. Esau's in on it. Absolutely, let's do it. No, what happens, verse 10, Rebekah was listening to what Isaac said. So while Esau went to the field to hunt, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, listen, I heard your father talking with Esau. He said, bring me some game, make a delicious meal for you so that I can eat, bless you in the Lord's presence. Now listen and do what I tell you. Go to the flock, bring me goats. I will make the meal for your father. Then you can take it and he will bless you before he dies. The weakness of the chosen people even through their deceit and sin and their own malice, still God will not be stopped. Bluffing won't do it. Somehow trying to convince God that you're good when you know you're not good. Esau, when he comes in at the end, finally goes, is there anything for me, please? It's all falling apart. God will not be stopped. Such that by the end of the story... We've had three chapters where it was teetering. Will it work? Will it not work? By the start of chapter 28, Isaac summoned Jacob, blessed him and commanded him, don't marry a Canaanite girl. Off you go, do the right thing. Find the girl you're supposed to. So Isaac sent Jacob to Laban to find a wife. Through divine sovereignty in grace, by responsible human actions, God steers the course of history and he does it in the big picture and he does it in your life and in mine. I mean, just think for a moment about Jesus. Exactly the same thing happened to him. By the hands of lawless men, when all could have been lost, when it seemed like the one moment of crowning glory when the king was going to come and rule the world, the king was killed. But by his sovereign election, God brought about his redemptive purposes. That death was the death for sacrifice. Raised to new life, Jesus does reign as the king. I want to finish with the question of why does it matter? Why should we care about 
theology? Why should we care about this particular piece of theology? That God is sovereign. Now I'll tell you, I think there are a few other doctrines, a few other teachings, right? a few other pieces of theology that impact so many areas of our Christian life. Honestly. We have confidence of salvation. Right, hear me say that. You and I can be assured of our eternal destiny only because God saves through his sovereign election. You see, otherwise we'd be back to works, wouldn't we? If it was up to me as to whether I'm going to be saved or not, oh, have I done enough? Do I need to do more? Have I yet crossed the line? Am I I'll tell you what, all the other religions are still like that. The, the, the Muslim never knows he's done enough. Roman Catholicism is similar. The Buddhist, have I reached enough to transcend yet? Have I, even for the atheist, have I lived a good enough life to be pleased with myself yet? Only God is the one who brings grace. We have confidence of salvation. We have prayer that we, do, we pray with power because God acts. You see, if God wasn't sovereign, then our prayers would be pointless. If God is not the one who powerfully works in the world, then we'd be praying to someone who's incompetent. It's certainly not fatalism. Okay? It's not just saying, well, God will do what God wants to do because God acts through responsible human choices. God invites us to partner with him in his work in the world through prayer. We evangelize with peace. Because it's God's choice, not ours. We, we don't have to argue someone into the kingdom of God. It doesn't rest on me whether someone else comes to Jesus or not. I preach, I work hard to see them saved, but I have peace knowing that it's God's work. We, we live our own lives without being destroyed by the weight of our own sin, of our own failings, because God exercises his sovereign power in mercy towards us. We, we can face the future without fear. Do you see why I'm saying it affects so many areas of our lives? We can face the future without fear. feels like there's a lot to be afraid of right now, whether it's virus or catastrophe in the world, whether it's economic upheaval, whether it's terrorism or crime or, or persecution. We have a God who exercises all of his might and power to bring about the redemption of his people. He is sovereign. He directs history, both in the big picture and in your life and mine. And it is all headed towards that one point where the Lord Jesus returns. He is displayed in glory and we, his people, share that glory with him. We have a God who is worth trusting in because he is trustworthy. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way you've opted to work in this world, that you achieve your redemptive purposes through your own sovereign will. You choose, you act, you plan, you save. We thank you for the confidence it gives us, for the peace, for the rest, we thank you, Father, that without, because without that, we'd still be in slavery. We'd still be lost in our sin. 
We thank you that it's such wonderful news. And so, Father, please would you give us your peace as we face the future, as we look towards comes ahead without really knowing. Help us to trust that you do. You've planned it. It's in your hands. Help us to rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen.